Welcome. Thank you for listening. We're currently working our way through the book of Joshua, celebrating the God who keeps every promise he has ever made. If you're in the Milwaukee area and you're looking for a church home, we'd love to meet you. You can connect with us more through our website, harvestcommunity.org. Well, good morning, Harvest Church. How are we doing this morning? Great. My name is Dave Hahn. If you don't know me, I've been here a couple times. Sometimes I sit behind these things, but most recently I've been had the privilege of being able to open the Word of God with and for you. So I am so grateful for any opportunity that I have to be able to be with you guys. And certainly it's a privilege for me to be able to enter into uh, this series in Joshua that you guys have been in for a little while. So thank you once again for, for having me and letting me visit with you. So I'd like to start this morning with a somewhat odd but a personal confession. I don't like tomatoes. Anybody else on board? Yeah. Mayo's horrible too, but today we're talking about tomatoes. I don't like tomatoes, but I really do enjoy many of their products, especially ketchup. When I was a kid, and probably for many of you, ketchup only came in glass bottles. And believe me when I say that bottle caused all kinds of problems and frustrations for ketchup users worldwide. Then in 1983, if you remember, the squeeze ketchup bottle with the dispenser at the top was invented. That was almost 40 years ago. Now this new bottle with the dispenser at the top certainly was a step in the right direction, but there were still consumer complaints until in 2002 when Heinz introduced the inverted ketchup bottle with the dispenser at the bottom. It's hard to believe it took that long, isn't it? Now this is the bottle that most of us know and use today, earning its inventor, Paul Brown, $13 million for that invention. It was and is a revolutionary invention to be sure, and thanks to Mr. Brown, current and future generations will never know the pain of opening a new glass bottle of ketchup or getting to the end of one. You see, before some of you were born, people would have to aggressively shake and beat and prod glass ketchup bottles to get any ketchup out of it. And almost never would the ketchup user get the desired amount of ketchup out of that bottle. It was either way, way too much, or it was just splatters of nothing. Now, some of you at this point, rightly so, may be asking, why is this guy talking so much about ketchup? Well, the purpose of this little history lesson, as it were, or anecdote, is to give some context to a story that I wanted to share with you this morning, a story that I think somewhat connects to today's scripture passage. So a story was told of a woman who is trying very, very hard to get ketchup out of the jar. And during her struggle, the phone rang. So she had asked her four-year-old daughter to answer it, and so her daughter picked up the phone and she said, Hello? No, mommy can't come to the phone right now. She's hitting the bottle. Right? I mean, that is a dad joke of dad jokes if I ever heard one. Now, if you don't know why that story is funny, you can ask somebody around you, but all you need to know right now is that the hitting the bottle comment 
has a double meaning and it would have likely led to a silly misunderstanding between the person on the phone and the mom. As we all know, it is possible to see something and hear something and come to realize that what we think we have seen or heard is not actually what was said or done. And sadly, those kinds of misunderstandings can lead to unfair judgment or unkind commentary or confrontation, even among Christians who have personally received the love, grace, and kindness of God. And as Christians who have received all of those gifts and more from God, we then are to be people who extend that same love, grace, and kindness to others while remaining zealous for the truth of God's word and pure in the faith he has given us. Friends, in today's passage from Joshua 22, we see the people of God misunderstand one another. And we witness how they chose to deal with that misunderstanding and potential divide between them, particularly as God's chosen people who were called to live in both truth and grace. With that, let's first look at verses 10 through 12 of chapter 22. Verse 10, and when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So on their way home, while still in Canaan, near the Jordan River, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh built a huge and imposing altar. According to verse 11, this altar was near or on the west bank of the Jordan River, though their designated homeland was east of the Jordan. And in building an altar as big as this one was, it was as though these eastern tribes wanted to make sure the other ten tribes in particular would notice. And notice they did. Even to the point of planning to go to war over it, if necessary. And then in verses 13 through 14, we read, Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. So, In response to what they believed was happening, the western tribes of Israel sent a delegation of ten chiefs, one from each tribe, led by Phinehas, a priest. But what's the big deal here? What's going on? What are the other tribes so concerned about that they're considering war? Well, as we read on, we see that it was not the size of the altar that concerned them, but what it signified. 
It was not the size of the altar, but what it signified that concerned them. You see, no matter the size, altars were used by both the people of God and pagans to sacrifice to their God or gods as an expression of worship. And the worship of anything or anyone other than the one true God is what the Bible calls idolatry. And idolatry is a sin in that it breaks both the first and the second of the Ten Commandments. In Israel's recent past, at this point, false gods and idols had been worshipped, and as a result, things went very, very badly for them. That's what Eleazar is talking about later on in these passages. And because of the sins that we read about in verses 17 through 20 of this chapter, along with the commands that God had given in his law, Israel was crystal clear as to what they were to do if they were to discover idolatry among the people or anywhere inside the land that God had given them. They knew what to do. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 12 through 16. This is where they were instructed. God says, if you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. My friends, this is all about idolatry and what to do in Israel if it were to be discovered among the people or in the land that God had given. So friends, idolatry is a gross offense to God in that it rejects his command to worship him and him alone, but it also betrays his love and trust, and it seeks to steal glory from the only one worthy of it. And this time and place, it was false and pagan gods who were the primary objects of idolatry. And they are often represented through statues or carvings or had altars built in their honor. Think Indiana Jones. That's what we're talking about here. And because that is the way that idols have been historically thought of and portrayed Many modern-day Christians, us included, think very little of idolatry. And we don't see it as a real threat for or to our own lives, much less a sin that we are personally prone to commit. Simply because we misunderstand the heart of idolatry and the many subtle forms that it can take. I mean, I, I don't know anyone with an altar in their home or statues that they pray or sacrifice to, but I know plenty of idolaters, myself included. And that is because idolatry is a sin of the heart, and it isn't always identifiable from the outside. 
To define it somewhat simply, idolatry is the practice of putting anyone or anything in the place of God. Idolatry is the practice of putting anyone or anything in the place of God. And so we make idols of our families, of our spouses, of our children, of our friends, our health, our sexuality, our careers, our finances, our government, our nation, our pastors, and our churches. Or anything else that we might look to for what only God can give us. Pastor Tim Keller said it this way, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. And the 10 tribes west of the Jordan River saw this enormous altar built by the eastern tribes as evidence of idolatrous behavior in their fellow Israelites. Now, in one sense, the concern these tribes had for their brothers and sisters, along with their willingness to confront them about idolatry, is biblical, as we read in Deuteronomy. And it is admirable, and it is good, and it is right. But in another sense, there may be evidence here of an overreaction born of a lack of knowledge. I mean, here's what I mean. The tribes west of the Jordan were preparing to go to war against the tribes east of it without really knowing why they built the altar in the first place. They just knew there was an altar. Now, as we see later in verses 30 through 34, these 10 tribes weren't eager to make war no matter what it was that they found, but they were very eager to do so if what they uncovered was a rebellion against God. So my friends, let me ask you a question. How quick are we? How quick are we to presume the worst of others and to get ready to go to war against someone? even a brother or a sister in Christ, when we may not yet have the facts or listened to their side of the story or even really sought to understand them, how quick are we? My friends, that, that kind of rash approach is the spirit of Satan. It is not the spirit of God. In that, Satan seeks to accuse and condemn and separate those created in God's image and called to be sons and daughters, while God seeks to save, restore, and bring true peace and unity in him. So as the people of God, the body of Christ, and his church, we are commanded to care for one another, protect one another, reason with one another, and as needed, rebuke one another with the goal of restoration not condemnation in mind. Our goal is restoration, not condemnation. And what we see in Joshua 22 is the people of God watching out for their brothers and sisters, intent on protecting themselves from the poison of any sin that may come their way, in this case, idolatry, but also being intent on rejoicing where true worship is found or wherever restoration, unity, and peace with God and one another is gained. 
So it's both. Friends, in Matthew 18, Jesus lays out for us how we should handle a brother or a sister who has hurt us, offended us, or sinned against us. Listen to verses 15 through 17. This is Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All throughout scripture, we are commanded to assume the best of fellow believers, to consider them better than we do ourselves, to pay more attention to our own sin than we do the sins of others, and to be humble, remembering the mercy and the grace that we have received. And in all of these things, we are called to have a heart that seeks restoration rather than judgment or condemnation. Because God's word leaves no room for being precipitous. And it warns against addressing our concerns through gossip or behind someone's back or to add to our modern context to do so in online platforms. Rather, my friends, Scripture expects personal interactions and one-on-one conversations with the people involved, no matter how uncomfortable we may be with that kind of a thing. It expects personal one-on-one interactions with those that are involved, no matter how uncomfortable those things make us. Finally, chapters like Joshua 22 and Matthew 18 presume an established, an established relationship and community built on the love of Christ. Practically, that means, friends, that we have to earn the right to lovingly confront a brother or a sister in Christ. We have to earn that right through community, through relationship, through investing in people. In other words, if we do not have a relationship with someone that warrants a personal confrontation, it is likely better not to confront them and let any real concerns be addressed by those who know and love them better than we do. Friends, God has not asked us to police or condemn people we really don't know or are invested in. You see, the the 12 tribes of Israel had walked alongside each other in life. They had fought side by side in battle as they came up against their enemies and took hold of the land that God had given them. They knew each other, they trusted each other, and they saw firsthand that they wanted what was best for the other. And as a result, they earned the right to say and do hard things because they knew that the other had their best interest in mind. Now, certainly we can, and maybe even should, seek wisdom from pastors and other brothers and sisters in Christ before we enter into personal one-on-one conversations. But if we never get around to having that interaction or conversation, we are outside of Christ's command to us. We can't just let it spin 
behind the scenes, behind their backs, or in other ways. Eventually, that conversation has to happen. Otherwise, we are not living peaceably with everyone as far as it depends on us, as Roman 12 lays out. Now, in some ways, we actually see Matthew 18 laid out before us in verses 15 through 20 of Joshua 22. Let me read it. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them. They came to them, and they said to them. Personal one-on-one confrontation as soon as a cause for concern had arisen. But really where we first see this idea modeled is in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned and tried to hide from God. And in love, God pursued Adam and Eve and asked them where they were and what they had done. So friends, in Genesis 3 and Joshua 22 and Matthew 18 and many other places throughout Scripture, we are shown that apathy is not love. Apathy is not love. Fear of confrontation is not love. Rather, it is the active pursuit and willful desire for the eternal good of another where we see love. I wonder, as we talk about all of these things, if the modern church is in a bit of a pendulum swing when it comes to properly addressing and reacting to the sins of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So to the one side of that pendulum, we tend to ignore the sins and the struggles of other people, turning a blind eye to it and saying nothing. Likely due to a fear of confrontation or to the fear of the rejection of others. And on the other side of that pendulum, we become heresy hunters and we eagerly seek out the sins of other believers, waiting to pounce in judgment and condemnation before we ever seek to understand what is truly underneath the thing that concerns or offends us. And as in most things, the better way sits right down the middle. For the sake of our brothers' and sisters' relationship with Christ, their witness to an unbelieving world, and the glory of our God, we first need to take sin seriously in our own lives. And then the appearance or commission of sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lovingly, but boldly confronting, and as needed, encouraging repentance that leads to restoration. Church, we need to assume the best of others in love, realizing that our knowledge and understanding of whatever the situation is, is likely limited. And because of those limitations, we look for opportunities to learn and to understand and to forgive as needed, just as we see in today's text. So in verses 15 through 20 of 22, we see the details of the confrontation between the tribes and the delegation. Through Eleazar, the eastern tribes, the head of the eastern tribes were asked why they would betray God and build an altar in rebellion against him. 
And then they were reminded of the sins that they had already committed and the plague that came upon them as a result of their sin. And then heard of the concern that God would punish all of Israel for such a rebellion, not just them, but all of Israel. Eleazar and this delegation then began pleading with these tribes in verse 19, saying essentially, whatever has led you to build this altar, if you believe that somehow God is not present in your land or that it has been undefiled, it would be better for you to live with and among us than to sacrifice to false gods and rebel against the one true God. Please don't do this. My friends, through, the, through these pleas, we see the seriousness of sin, and the, of, of sin and idolatry in the eyes of God and his people. And we see the willingness of the Western tribes, these brothers and sisters, to do anything to keep their brothers and sisters from sin. Is that where we are as the church today? Is that where we are? Do we so badly want to see our brothers and sisters in Christ turn away from sin and then toward God that we would sacrifice what belongs to us? That we would sacrifice time in our lives, space in our homes, or money from our bank account? Because that appears to be the heart of this delegation on behalf of their kinsmen. And then finally, in verses 21 through 29, we see the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh explain this altar they have built. Beginning in verse 22, we read, and I'm going to skip around a little bit just for the sake of time. Verse 22, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. Jumping ahead to 25 and 20 through 27. For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And then finishing with verse 29, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So in response to Eleazar and the questioning delegation, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh first appeal to God, who knows their hearts, their motivations, and their allegiances. Saying in verse 22, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, he knows. Now let Israel itself know. My friends, what a comfort it is to know that even if all others misunderstand us or abandon us, and some of them will, we have a God who knows, who knows, and who never leaves us or forsakes us 
because he knows us intimately and he loves us completely. That is where the Eastern tribes found their peace. Now, of course, you will only find comfort and peace in the unwavering power, presence, and love of God if it is God's love, presence, and power that you desire most. You will only find peace in it if that's what you desire most. But if what you most seek is love, is the love and presence and power of mankind, which is idolatry, you'll do and say just about anything to keep it. But that's not what we see here. What we see is a, a people who care most about who God is, what he sees, and how he feels about them. And as a result, we also see a people who, though confronted due to a misunderstanding, exhibited incredible understanding toward those who confronted them. Verse 22 and 23 reads, If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. That was their response. So here again, I think we need to be introspective and ask ourselves, if and when a trusted brother or sister confronts us, asks questions of us, or even accuses us, how do we react? How might we react? Would we see it as an act of love, or would we rise up in defense and self-justification? In verses 21 through 29, what we come to learn is that the goal of the Eastern tribes was to ensure that they and their future generations would not lose their portion or promise in the Lord. That's why they built the altar. So the Jordan River, with the Jordan River serving as a geographical divide of sorts, they did not want future generations of their Western tribes to one day say, what right do you have to worship God? That's what they were guarding against. But you see, in the eyes of God and according to his gracious choosing, Israel is one people, regardless of which side of the river they call home. And they are all invited into a covenant relationship with him. Though Israel may be divided geographically, says the Lord, he did not want them to be so in spirit. They were divided geographically, but not so in spirit. And in the hearts and the minds of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, the altar was a sign of unity. It was not one of division or rebellion or idolatry. Look again at verse 28, what they say. Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, a copy which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but, listen, to be a witness between us and you. The answer for the replica altar pleased 
Eleazar and the delegation. And as we read in verse 34, the altar was therefore called witness, just as those who built the altar intended it to be. I love the way that the new century version of the Bible translates verse 34. I'll read it for you. It may be behind me as well. Verse 34 from the new century version. And the people of Reuben and Gad named the altar proof that we believe the Lord is God. That's that altar. Proof that we all believe that the Lord is God. It served as a witness to all of Israel, regardless what side of the river they lived on, that their affections and their allegiance has been and should ever be to the one true God. So over the last couple of decades, I have had the privilege of going on a handful of short-term mission trips to Eastern Europe and to Africa and to Thailand. In 2010, I was actually part of the second Lausanne Conference in Cape Town, South Africa, which saw 4,000 Christian leaders from 198 different countries come together to consider what the mission of God looked forward and looked, looked like in the years to come. But no matter where I have been or what people I have met, the vast majority of the folks that I have been able to come across in those places, the only thing that we had in common was that we were creations of God. And by his grace, through the death and resurrection of his son, we were made children of God. Our physical appearances were different. Our languages were different. Our cultures were different. Our politics were different. And the way that we came to know and love Jesus Christ was different. But the one that we have in common was and is strong enough to bind us together for all eternity and to help us celebrate, not be threatened by the ways in which we differ. What matters most is that despite our differences, we declare the mighty one, God, as Lord. And we seek to know and love and glorify him all our days. What, my friends, is more important or unifying than that? Church, it is what we believe about Jesus Christ and whether or not we know and love and follow him that truly unifies or divides mankind. Unity is found in him and him alone. Do you know that in God's view, there is one human race divided into three groups? Unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles, and the church called by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Three groups of people in God's eyes. Whatever else we may choose to divide over is largely insignificant in view of eternity. And it is insignificant in consideration of what we leave behind when our time here on earth is done and we stand before God. See, not even our earthly families with whom we share homes and we share physical blood can truly unite and bring peace. Isn't that what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10? 
It is the blood of Jesus alone that makes us members of an eternal family. And it is through faith in Christ that there can be unity where there might not otherwise be so. So no matter what side of the proverbial river you and I live on, the color of our skin, the languages we speak, the cultures that shaped us, the people that we vote for, or the service we attend on a Sunday morning, if we have Christ in common, if we have Christ in common, and if we declare in word and deed that he alone is mighty and that he alone is God, we have everything in common and we are family. And we don't need a humongous, excuse me, we don't need a humongous altar to serve as a witness to those things because we have the word of God and we have the spirit of God himself as our witness. So my friends all around us in the places that we live and work, play and go to school, there are lost and dying people just like we were. And there are also members of the family of God through faith in Christ, just as we are. And God has put you and I in their lives at this very time and place to serve as a witness to and a reminder of the power, presence, and love of God in their lives. He is chasing down the lost and the dead through us so that they too might be brought into the family of God. And among them all, Among them all, there is no one, no matter how different they are from you or me, no matter how rebellious, defiant, or antichrist they they may be in this moment, no matter what side of the tracks they live on, there is no one who is outside of God's reach if he chooses to set his grace and his mercy upon them and chooses them for salvation in his son. And so we declare Because thousands of years ago, God chose a people for himself, not because of who they were, but because of who he is. In the book of Joshua and throughout the Old Testament, those people are called the nation of Israel. But today, today, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that gathering of people made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation that people are now called the church. And they are a holy building, not made of bricks or studs or drywall, but of precious souls that Jesus gave his life for and Jesus gave his life to. And they are a holy family, a holy kingdom, and a holy priesthood. And if you know and love Jesus Christ today, you are part of it both now and forever. No one and nothing can take you from him. So when you and I, as part of God's church and chosen people, are confronted with the sins of an unbelieving world, and will we ever be, we tell them of a holy God who hates their sin so much that It is eternal death and separation from him that they deserve. But at the same time, we tell them of a gracious God who loves them so much that he gave his only son to take upon himself the death that they do deserve on the cross 
It is the good news of the gospel. And we tell them that those, for those who love and follow and believe in him, right standing before God the Father, eternal life in him, and a forever family awaits. And friends, this good news of the gospel doesn't just save unbelievers. It also transforms and sanctifies those who believe. It transforms and sanctifies you and I. Which means that when we are confronted with the sins of a brother or a sister in Christ, and we can be sure that we will there as well, we handle that situation differently than we would with an unbeliever. You don't talk to dead people as though they're alive. And you don't talk to living people as though they're dead. Church, unbelievers are spiritually dead enemies of God who are enslaved by sin. And it is the forgiveness of God, the righteousness of God, and the life of God and a new identity in God that they most need. So we first point them to Jesus in whom all of those things and more are found, in whom reconciliation to God is known. But in contrast to unbelievers, Christians who sin, this is converse, Christians who sin are already and always fully forgiven, eternally alive, righteous sons and daughters of God who in their sin are experiencing some kind of spiritual amnesia. And what I mean by that is they, they have temporarily forgotten God. They have lost sight of who they are and all that they have been given in Christ. And they need to be lovingly reminded, this is not who you are. This is not who you are anymore. And we say these things so that, just as he did in Joshua 22, through his people, God might restore and sanctify and unify his body in and through the only one who can ultimately and internally provided his only son, Jesus Christ, the mighty one, God, the Lord. May his holy name, may his precious name forever be on our hearts and minds and lips. Let's pray in his name and for his glory together.